Well, welcome to the 10 a.m. service. We are continuing in our Doctrines of Grace series. And we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in the doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption is what we're speaking of. And we have been talking about the design of the atonement. And it's my plan um, this morning, and you know what the plans of men are worth. It's my plan that we finish this section on atonement uh, this morning, and then um, we'll move on into some er other areas. I'm anticipating this lesson and perhaps two or three additional lessons just on the atonement. So um, I hope to address all aspects of it uh, that we may understand it more fully. But of course, as we go through this, don't hesitate to ask questions. Um, and if it is something that I'm going to spend a significant amount of time on in the future, then um, I'll let you know that that's something that we'll, we'll, we'll dive deeper into, and I'll attempt to give you a, um, a shorter answer um, uh, at, this at that particular time that you ask. So, <clears throat> as I said, we've, we've been talking about the design of the atonement. And recall that basically we determined there are three options in the atonement, and we eliminated one of them. Um, and we, the one we eliminated, of course, was universalism. The, um, the idea that the atonement, Christ's atoning death and sacrifice, uh, the idea that it is um, for all people, that it's a, that's an actual sacrifice, but for all people, um, has been rejected soundly by the church since the very earliest time until now. And, of course, you know, it is rejected, and not only rejected, but specifically taught against in Scripture. So we've taken that one off the table. We're left with two, as you recall, um, and we have two choices that we're dealing with. A potential atonement that's available to all people, or an actual atonement that is given to an elect people, to a specific group of people. And, I, and I, to clarify, not just a group, but individuals in the group. There, there are some that will, that will say, well, yes, the Bible does speak of election, but, it's, but it refers to just a group. And there will be an elect group but we don't know who's in the group, and those who are in the group are in the group because they decided to join the group. So that's a way that many who hold to this view will explain what election means in Scripture. <clears throat> we reject that, and we hold that Scripture clearly teaches, I would say, that election is for specific individuals that make up the elect people. Now, we had been looking at the terms that Scripture uses um, for the atonement to see what we could learn from these terms. What do these terms tell us? Do they help us, and how do they help us, determine which option is scriptural? So previously, we covered the terms redemption and propitiation. 
And this morning I intend to cover the terms reconciliation and the term atonement itself. So reconciliation. <clears throat> Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Second Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. Verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Going on in verse 19, um, Paul continues to write, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to us the message of reconciliation. <clears throat> so what does reconciliation mean? Uh, it means to make one or to establish peace. This should give us the idea of it being connected to a conflict. Reconciliation is something that occurs between warring parties. What kind of reconciliation would it be if the parties continued fighting. There would be no reconciliation, would there? There'd be warfare, continuing warfare. So that would not be true reconciliation. The Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we are at war with God. We are God's enemies. Romans 5.10 tells us, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. <clears throat> so our sinful nature puts us at war with God. Enemies of God, regardless of what People, what some people may think or say is what scripture, as I just read uh, what Paul had to say to the Romans, this is what scripture clearly teaches. And yes, it's a, it's a difficult concept, at least initially. Um, perhaps some of you uh, early in your, in your uh, 
experience as Christians felt that this was difficult because what does it point us to? It points us to what our status was before God saved us. And we may think, well, I was not at war with God. I, in fact, was looking for God. I was searching for God. As we grow in our, our, our maturity and sanctification, we usually realize at some point that that's not true, that we weren't looking for God as he reveals himself in the Bible. We were looking for a God that made us happy in our sinful state. So this idea that, that many have, many will reject this idea of uh, enmity between, between man and God, even those who profess Christianity may reject it, many do, because they have this, uh, this concept of universal brotherhood, and that, yes, there is brotherhood in man, is, is there not? We, we are all offspring of, of the, the first um, the first people, the first humans in the garden, Adam and Eve. Right? We're offspring of Adam. And thus, we have inherited Adam's nature, right? And Adam's nature is what? It, it, it is sinful. So as much as we would like to go with this utopian concept, this idea that there is this human moral perfection that is maybe just a little bit under the surface, and if we just work really hard, we can get to it and we can bring all people together. This idea, we see this, we've seen it through human history, and we see it even now today. And this, this utopian idea of universal brotherhood takes the guise of, of many different types of systems that in the end are, are, are not Utopian. They're in fact dystopian. Um, they're the opposite. They're not uh, really for humans, but they actually turn against humans. And you can think of communism um, or socialism, uh, even the, um, the environmental movement, which we saw grow from something very alter apparently altruistic and utopian in the 70s to where it is now, where Basically, it appears that humans should be sacrificed to the altar of environmentalism. <clears throat> but anyway, so this is a, this is a difficult concept um, uh, for, for many people. And think again, and if you, if you need to, look back at 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 that I just read, that those who reject Christ are also rejecting the ministry of reconciliation. Christ is the only way to be reconciled with God. And I think what is implied also in this is to be reconciled one to another here uh, as the image bearers of God. So we're either reconciled to God and granted peace or not. And then we remain at war. And there's no halfway, really, between war and peace, is there? Well, if you get to page 700 in, in Tolstoy's classic novel and stop, you'd be halfway in, in war and peace. That, that's a literary joke. 
<laughs> Excuse me. I couldn't resist that one. So yeah, I've been there. I'm, I think I got about halfway. <laughs> I was like, I can't keep these names straight. So, <clears throat> reconciliation. And of course it's important, and I hope you see that as we move through this, that we are, um, <clears throat> we're not using um, words that we think fit. We're using the inspired word of God although in English translation, to, to point us to understanding this concept of atonement. So we're relying on what God is telling us to understand this. So, excuse me. Our next term that we come to is atonement. So atonement is one of the few theological terms with, with its roots in the English language. We touched on this very briefly when we first started this section on limited atonement, and we talked about the word atonement, and we discovered that if you broke the word apart, you have at one So this is the idea in this English word that it brings some things that are separate, brings them um, together. It's, so it makes at one that which was formerly at odds against each other. So, this English term in the Old Testament is used to translate this Hebrew term, kafar. And kafar means to cover or smear over with pitch. Kafar, so we trans translate that as a tone. We also find variations of kafar used in uh, the Hebrew scriptures for the mercy seat on the ark. Um, kaparim, uh, the, the plural atonement, um, as, as it can be translated. And then... Um, we know how it's translated in the Greek because of the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And um, so it's found, this term is found because we have the Greek Old, Old Testament, we can see in the New Testament, which is in Greek also, we can see that this term is used twice in the New Testament. It's uh, used, uh, a form of this is used to uh, translate in the New Testament mercy seat or to make atonement or sacrifice of atonement. <clears throat> so I want to point our attention to Genesis chapter 6 to help us understand this a bit better, the concept of it. 
Specifically, this idea that Kafar refers to of, of um, to covering, covering over something, smearing something with pitch. So what does this remind us of? Maybe maybe doesn't remind us of anything, but um, because it may be something that we've read maybe many times and just looked at as a minor detail that didn't really mean anything um, to us. It was just one of those things that that the Bible mentions in detail, and we go we continue on, which you know it's understandable because if we're reading a historical account of something, if we're reading a true account of something that happened in the past, we often find these, these small details, don't we, um, that, uh, that, that give us a sense of um, truthfulness about it. You know, if this was just made up, if it was a myth, why would there be these small details? If you read... Um, the myths of the of the ancient Greek gods or Roman gods, you know, you, you don't always find this the sort of detail that that a historical writer is going to give you. So, specifically, we're talking about the time when God instructed Noah to build the ark. So, look at verse 14 in Genesis chapter 6. Here's God speaking to Noah, and he tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now the word cover here in the Hebrew is comes from um, kafar. Why would this, there be a connection between the idea of the atonement and the building of the ark. What happens at the time of the great deluge, the time of the great flood, and God's instructions to Noah to build an ark? What's coming? The rains are coming, the flood which we know is what? God's judgment. God's judgment is coming. So God chooses this one man, whom we're told is a righteous man, and he's told to build this vessel and to make the vessel secure so that those inside are rescued from God's judgment. He must kafar. He must smear it. He must cover it with pitch. Now, this, is, this may be obvious, and excuse me, sometimes I go over obvious things, but I just want to make sure we understand. You build a boat, and you don't caulk the planks if it's wooden, or you don't smear it over with something, you're going to have a leaky boat, right? And no one wants to go to sea in a, in a leaky boat. And, and God is ensuring that this vessel of rescue, this, 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 this boat of, um, of redemption, really, is watertight against his judgment. God's not saying his judgment is bad. It's not that the, it's not the, that's not keeping the bad out. It's keeping God's 
righteous wrath from the people in the boat who God has determined are to survive his great event of, ju of uh, judgment. So I think this is very helpful for us to understand atonement, what atonement means. So it has, in a sense, much the same meaning as reconciliation. <clears throat> but there's a uniqueness to this idea of atonement, and that's its connection to sacrifice. And we see this, don't we, with the, hang on, Doug. You have a question? Uh, a comment. Ah. <laughs> a short one. <laughs> Let me get through this yes. a little bit. And then, and then you can step in and fill in my blanks. Um, okay. How is this word connected to sacrifice? We see how it's connected to the ark, right? Smearing the pitch. But here's the odd thing. is The same word in a slightly different form is connected to the Ark of the Covenant. Again, something that God gives instructions on how to build it, specifically. You know, very, very detailed instructions, just like the Ark. We know nothing about Noah as far as him having an ability to build a vessel, a seagoing vessel. And I think it's pretty safe to say, judge, based on where we think Noah lived, he was not a seafaring man. He wouldn't build a vessel for that. So God gives him specific instructions. Again, with the ark, specific instructions are given. And a mercy seat is, is to be built on it using this term. But of course, there's no smearing of pitch on the ark, is there? There's no covering with pitch like on the vessel, the ark. So what is smeared, what is placed upon the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant? Blood. Okay, yes. But um, apart, once it's made, let me, let me clarify, because yes, it is covered with gold, like, like um, Linda R. said. Once it's, once it's, once it's constructed, and it's constructed to be used in conjunction with the worship of God, right? And what at that time was to take place in the worship of the Lord God, Yahweh? Animal sacrifice. What then was sprinkled, according to Scripture, on the mercy seat? The blood of the sacrifice, right? So that's the covering on the mercy seat is the blood of the sacrifice. Can you see the connection between these things? The, the rescue in the ark and then the atonement uh, with the mercy seat that enabled God's people to be in community, so to speak, with him. The, the, the atoning of the ritual purity uh, issues that the Old Testament um, Hebrews had to deal with 
the, 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 the religious uh, requirements and laws in order for God to dwell with them in their camp. So these connections <clears throat> are important, and then they build to something later, which we know of as Christ's atoning death. So <clears throat> let me take a break here, and we'll go with Doug and then Linda G. Doug. Really quick connection with the word reconciled in Greek that also has a financial connotation to it as in an exchange for money. We understand it when we reconcile our, our banking and things like that. Um, going to Kafar in the Hebrew, that also has a financial connotation to it as in the redemption price that Christ paid, which I'm adding the Christ paid part uh, because obviously that hadn't been done at the time that the Hebrew Bible was written. But there's a connection to the whole reconciliation and the covering of, of what's going on here in these words. It's, it's just an interesting parallel, I see, with, with a Greek term of reconciliation in the New Testament and the Old Testament kafar of, of a, a redemption price that, that was paid. Very good, Doug. You're seeing something that I want us to see, the connection in these terms. And, uh, and Doug's pointed out some that I probably have not mentioned, um, but his, his explanation of reconciliation, remember when we talked about redemption, redemption being a, a trade term, a commercial term, and Doug showing, is telling us how these connect. Um, and I want you to see that with, with all of these terms, that there, there are connections. And why are connections important? Because connections show us that, number one, I think, which is important, is that God's word is talking about the same thing, even if the terms are a little bit different, and that we are not to get sidetracked by, well, you know, and, and there are well-meaning Christians that do get sidetracked by terms and the way we translate them in English. Well, that, that there means this, but this is completely different. It's two different things. So we must understand that. It's talking about, we're talking about one thing here, and these different terms all fit in. Thanks, Doug. Linda. Well, when you were talking about the smearing of the pitch, um, two things came to my mind, the, the ark, of a, uh, the Noah's ark. But then I was also thinking, I don't know if the same word is used here at all, but um, at the Passover, they were to smear the blood over the doors. Mm -hmm. So I, I was thinking of that smearing too. And then they would smear, whenever they would do a sacrifice, they would smear the blood on the altars. You know, So that was, that was a, a thing that they often implemented, this smearing of blood on things. Yes, yes, very good. Um, so... <clears throat> Here's, the, here's, here's what's really great. This is what I think is really cool. When we know our Bibles, we see these connections. That's important. Um, so those of you uh, who may not know your Bibles that well, either with us here or listening you know, on the Internet, um, this is why uh, the pastors here and, and most pastors encourage you to, to read your Bible daily. And you, as you read it, and I'm a great advocate of reading cover to cover. And I've been doing this for a long time um, to make these connections.
but I've, I've been trained in, in, a, in, a, in a literary uh, sense. So, th so these are very important um, to me. And then, you know, you, you may not, and it's perfectly fine not to know the original languages like Brother Doug does, and you may miss these things, not knowing the original language. Um, but, you know, that's the job of, you know, your elders and your uh, brothers in the church to, to help you with. So, um, thank you both. That, that was very helpful. So now, um, yeah, we're talking about atonement. Let me see where I am here. Kind of ties in with what Linda, Linda G. was talking about. <clears throat> um, and I had just, I had mentioned, I think, about the, the uniqueness of the idea of atonement and its, and its connection to sacrifice. And, how, and the Bible, here's, here's the new stuff connected to what Linda was talking about. The Bible teaches over and over again, from the time of the Lord God's instructions to the Israelites after their deliverance from bondage in Egypt, up through the New Testament, that sacrifices are required to atone for sin. We see this, turn to, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17, we're told, therefore he had to make, he, therefore he had to be made like his brothers. The, the he here, of course, is, is uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Who, who are the brothers that the author of Hebrews is speaking of here? Is it the four other male offspring of Mary and Joseph? No, I see many of you shaking your head no. Who are the brothers then? Us, yes, yes, very good. Um, isn't that, that's really kind of astounding, isn't it? To think about us being, you know, brothers in, in the ancient language sense, which included, you know, women. Um, and our, our English language used to work like that too until we got all caught up in um, some of this uh, stuff we're caught up in now. You, when you used to be able to say mankind or men, you could speak in general, which included both male and female. And we must understand that's exactly what the ancient languages, this is a little bit of a side thing. Pastor Steve has mentioned this many times. And so um, it's an important point. So we don't think that about half of the human race is excluded and it's only addressing men. We must understand how language works and, and we're, you know, uh, we're tinkering with it now like we try to tinker with everything else. So anyway... It talks about us, that we are in brotherhood with God the Son if we are in Christ. Doesn't that make sense? Being in Christ, then being very close to him. Going on here in Hebrews. Um, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Say, wait a minute, 
Pastor Ken, we, we already talked about propitiation. We're talking about atonement. You made a mistake. No, the underlying Greek here is um, what is often used for the term atonement. But it's, you see how it's interchangeable here? <clears throat> and propitiation, we know, if, we, uh, if, if you remember, and I'll, I'll remind us, propitiation is the idea of turning away God's wrath. So the atonement turning away God's wrath, you know, uh, propitiation. These are those really important connections that we should be seeing. What is the chief point here? The chief point is that Jesus really, really did. He actually did accomplish something by his death. It was an actual accomplishment, not a potential. And it was what the old covenant... Back in, in our Old Testament, when we read about the animal sacrifices, those things only pointed towards something. They prefigured Christ's atonement. It was like this was just a taste of what was to come. They pointed forward to Christ's work. When, when, when Jesus died and rose again, atonement was actually made. So unlike the Old Testament sacrifices which had to be repeated, didn't they? On the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement came every year. Um, the Jews, even today, celebrate uh, ceremonially the, the, the Day of Atonement. But Christ's sacrifice had to happen how many times? Just once. Once for all time. So putting these terms together, the four terms we've looked at, which is what the Bible does, and it's what we've been talking about and what, what you guys are doing, which, I, which just honestly thrills me um, when I see people making connections in what they read. That means you're reading something with understanding, with meaning, you know, um, and that's so important. Have you ever read, and, and I'm sure you have, because I... This happens to me, and it happens more often than I like to admit. We, we're in a very busy world. Our lives are very busy. It's very chaotic at times. You have a lot on your mind, right? I have a lot on my mind, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, and when we read, sometimes we take in the words, but not the meaning, right? But when you're making connections... Think about this. That means that you're understanding, you're seeing, you're, 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 you're getting into the book, be it the Bible or, or something else, and you're making these connections. That, that is deep. That's a sign of deep reading, and deep reading is, is very important, especially when it comes to our Bible studies. So these four terms, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, atonement, in these four terms, and what they mean, how, how they're defined, and how, how God has inspired human authors to write them and use them in his revealed word, we see through these terms that Jesus Christ did not come merely to make salvation possible. And in fact, isn't it so when we, when we look at this that... Um, these words that we see in some cases that it simply cannot apply to an a potential atonement. It can only apply to an actual atonement. 
So the, the word of God, I think it's safe to say, eliminates this idea of a potential atonement. Christ died to actually save his people. He did not come to make redemption possible. He died actually to redeem his people. He did not come to make propitiation, excuse me, he did come to make propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath, a reality. He had turned aside God's wrath for each and every one of the elect people of God, Christ's people also. He turned that away for eternity. So you can't lose that. This idea of propitiation is not just temporary. Christ cannot turn something, the the wrath of the Father, away and then look at what you have done and step out and bring the wrath back on you. So we have an assurance of our salvation in this term. So he didn't come to make reconciliation between God and man possible. He actually did reconcile to God, those whom the Father had given to him. Like we read in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. He did not come merely to make atonement for sins possible. He actually atoned for sins. John Murray, Professor John Murray of the old Princeton. And and then when old Princeton went away and became new Princeton and wasn't quite so... uh, marvelous as it once was, then he went to, uh, was part of Westminster Theological Seminary. He summarized this issue um, in, in his work on redemption accomplished and applied. And this is what um, Dr. Murray says. The very nature of Christ's mission and accomplishment is involved in this question. Did he come to save his people or did he come to put all men in a savable state? Did he come effectually and infallibly to redeem? Or did he come to make man redeemable? And this, is, this is the important thing that Murray's saying here. He, Murray says the doctrine of atonement, which we've been discussing um, these, these, these weeks, that must be radically revised as atonement if it applies to those who finally perish as well as to those who are the heirs of eternal life. Think on that. Murray's got a really good point, doesn't he? What does atonement mean if people going to hell are included in it, as well as those who go to eternal glory with God? It's basically meaningless. We've stripped all the meaning from these terms that the Bible carefully uses, not randomly, carefully. They're inspired, they're breathed out by God. This would dilute, if this was the case, what Murray, Murray asks, asks us to think of as, as, the, um, as the result, if we, if we just say it's a potential atonement, um, we would dilute all these grand categories by which scripture defines Christ's atonement. 
Now, I was just talking about reading and reading deeply. And if the words we read are meaningless, if we can plug any meaning into them, then what's the point in reading? And, and brothers and sisters, friends, that's the very definition of postmodern literature, is that you can make it say whatever you want it to say. That is, it is, and that's a lie. You can't. You can't. The author has an intent. You've, you've all written something, whether it's a note to someone or a letter or just a reminder, and that means something, right? When you wrote it, it meant something. The note, maybe you send a note to your child's teacher or a note to a coworker, or colleague at work, and that person receiving the note cannot just say, well, that I'm just going to say it means something different than I want it to mean. If we dilute these terms, we deprive them of their importance and glory as well as their efficacy, as well as what they do, their power. We, we strip the power um, from them. And we do well to ponder the words of our Lord himself, John 6, which I referred to a moment ago, verses 38 through 39. John 6, 38 through 39. We know this well, but it bears repeating the Lord says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Friends, brothers, sisters, if you're, if you're concerned about losing your salvation, don't doubt the word of the Lord. He's telling you right here that he cannot, he will not lose what the Father has given him. The Father has given you to be saved. The Son has saved you. The Holy Spirit has brought this transformation upon you. And the Son here is saying he will never, ever lose you. You are saved for all eternity. Christian. In Luke's gospel, it reads, um, Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. So that's definitive. That's what you're talking about, I think. I think. So Christian is saying um, that in Luke's gospel, it talks about the Lord Jesus coming to seek and to save. Very good point. Same thing, but, uh, but a different aspect, right? Um, that not only, um, not only is he, he is not just idly standing by, just waiting for people to find him. As Christian points out, Luke says he is seeking. He's looking for the lost sheep, is he not? Very good, brother. Thank you. So Christ's work on the cross is not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers. It's not, yeah, it's there if you want to believe. What good is a redemption that does not redeem? I'm getting into my end here. <laughs> you have a comment or a question? Why don't you hold that till uh, I finish okay. and, and then I'll get to you. Okay. Okay. What good is, as I said, a redemption that does not redeem? It's not a redemption, right? A propitiation that does not propitiate is not propitiation. A reconciliation that does not reconcile is not a reconciliation. It leaves us in a state of war, a state of war with God. And an atonement that does not atone cannot help anyone. So, Linda. Okay, I was just thinking about the sacrificing and that... You know, God 
didn't just say, okay, sacrifice the animal and that was it. So the sacrifice, yes, that's important. Christ was the sacrifice to make you know, propitiation with God, but that, that had to be applied somewhere. So after the sacrifice were made, almost always there was a pouring out of the blood, a sprinkling of the blood somewhere, a swiping, you know, when they would dedicate the priest, they would, you know, put the blood on their thumbs and their foreheads or whatever. So there's always the application of the blood. The blood had to be applied somewhere for it to be effective. And so I think that's where the, uh, you know, that the atonement, that his redemption was not just, it, it was applied. You know, it wasn't just left open-ended. Like, okay, here, here's the sacrifice, you know, and let's see what happens. How that, okay, good point. Let's, let's delve into that just real quickly. Um, how was the application determined? Who determined the application? to do with the blood. Exactly. Now that you sacrifice the blood, where is it going to go? Right. So God is the determiner of how the sacrifice that he has instructed to occur, how it is applied, and to whom it is applied. Because we must understand, and I've said this many times, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices did not atone for all sins. They only atoned for unintentional sins of ritual purity. If you were a thief, if you were a murderer, if you were a rapist, if you were an adulterer, that did not atone for your sins. You faced man's judgment than God's judgment. Oh, what a greater sacrifice Christ has given us. He atones. We murder, he atones for that. We commit adultery, he atones for that. We steal, he atones for that. Yes, we will, we will face judgment. We will face consequences for that. But it's a greater sacrifice. Those that have committed the worst sins that would have had them executed and banished from the camp of the Israelites are forgiven under this great sacrifice. So an ending here. Can divine love fail to rescue the beloved? You are God's beloved. He will not fail you. Did Christ unlock this door of the dungeon where we've been trapped, where all mankind has been trapped, where his bride is being held and leave the rescue to her? Is it just unlocked and he walks away? Well, where, uh, Master, when's the wedding? Well, I, I don't know if she's going to come out of the dungeon. I, I opened the door. Um, she's got to walk out. She's got to get here to the church. No, of course not. Christ booted in that door. He grabbed his bride, threw her over his shoulder, and got her out of there. That's what he did for us. God's word tells us of a redemption that redeems, a, a propitiation that propitiates, a reconciliation that reconciles, and an atonement that atones, revealing a most amazing grace on God's part. And, and, and draws us to rest in him and his completed work. And if you've been in the Genesis class, remember what I talked about rest, what rest means. Rest is the conquering of enemies and the sovereign being at peace on the throne. It's not just, hey, you can take it easy, take a nap. It's his completed work, not our own. 
And friend, if you demand that God respect your opinion on the extent he has gone to bring salvation to his people, if you say, no, I reject that, and this is what God must do, then you have placed yourself on the throne as Lord determiner of destiny. And scripture simply does not allow you to do this. Okay, we're a little bit over. Let me pray quickly and we'll have a short break before the 11 a.m. preaching. Heavenly Father, thank you for your atonement. Thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending forth the Holy Spirit upon us to transform us. Father, we give thanks for that. We give thanks for your word. Father, we give thanks that we may continue this morning with preaching and singing to your praise and glory. Um, Bless this time that is to come, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.